as much as NBA or NFL owners need tax breaks, they need the players more. Welcome to the Sports Business Radio Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Berger. You can find the Sports Business Radio Podcast over 13 years, 400 episodes featuring conversations with people like Mark Cuban, David Stern, Jeannie Buss, Charles Barkley, Jack Nicholas, and Kyrie Irving on iTunes or at sportsbusinessradio.com. We're ranked in the top 100 of the business news podcast section on iTunes. The Sports Business Radio Podcast, why should you listen? We're going to help you learn directly from top sports and business executives, athletes turned business people, content creators, and those working in and around the sports world. Whether you work in the sports or business world, you're a student trying to work in sports, or you just want to add overall business skills to your tool belt. We're going to bring you knowledge that you can apply to your life immediately after listening to our podcast each week. Follow us in between podcasts on Twitter at SB Radio. We've been named a top 50 follow by Forbes.com for three consecutive years and on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. This week, my guest is Brian Windhorst. He covers the NBA for ESPN. He does a fantastic job. I think he does a better job covering the NBA than just about anyone. He co-authored a really insightful piece with Zach Lowe about the economic state of the NBA. We'll discuss that with Brian Windhorst coming up on our show today. I'm joined in studio by our producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you? I'm doing great, and I'm, I'm stoked about this interview. It, it is really an insightful interview, and uh, just cool. This is why the show is so cool because you hear stuff and we talk about stuff with great guests that you don't hear anywhere else. And Brian's article is fascinating and the interview is really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing how the feedback uh, comes back to us. Yeah. If you haven't read it, it's on ESPN.com. But I think this conversation with Brian Windhorst will give you all the highlighted facts of the story. It may surprise you. I mean, 14 of the 30 NBA teams losing money despite the fact that $2.7 billion in TV money is shared amongst those teams. You look at that headline and you go, wait, how is this possible? But when we dig in to some of the numbers, you'll have a better idea about the economic state of the NBA, which, by the way, is very healthy. The NBA is one of the healthiest leagues in the world. $533 million in revenue last year. They're generating billions of dollars. So this isn't like, oh my gosh, the NBA is going to fail and it's circling the drain. It's not. It's just how is the money divided between the big market teams, the Lakers, the Knicks, and the small market teams, the Memphis Grizzlies, the Portland Trailblazers. So when you see how this revenue is shared, who's getting revenue, who's not, how much money is in the pie, I think it'll be an interesting listen for you. Quickly, Griggs, I've had an interesting past week. Some of it I can talk about, some of it I can't. Um, I can tell you that I had a sideline perspective on the field at Soldier Field for this past Sunday's Bears versus Steelers game. And it was announced shortly before the game that the Steelers would not take the sideline for the anthem. So to be there for that, I know the Seahawks and the Titans did the same thing. But at that point in the day, the Steelers were the first team to not take the sidelines for the anthem. We get into this a little bit with uh, Brian Windhorst coming up in our conversation, but to be there for that, and then I went to the post-game press conference, and I got to tell you, Mike Tomlin is one of the best coaches I've ever seen at the post-game press conference. He loses on a walk-off touchdown in overtime, and then he's getting peppered with questions about the anthem, and he was authentic, he was eloquent, he was strong. When he stepped up to that podium, like he was in command of that room and everything he said, you understood the reasoning for why the Steelers did what they did. And I think what got lost in that story, Griggs, is the reason they didn't come out isn't that they were protesting as much as they couldn't come to a consensus 100% as a team as to how they wanted to make a statement. So instead of this person doing this and that person doing that, which actually ended up happening anyways with the player who came out and was in the tunnel, kind of went rogue, they decided we're not going to come out at all and stand on the sideline because we, whatever we do, we want to do it as a team versus half the team is in the locker room, half the team is out of the locker room, half the team is kneeling, half the team isn't kneeling. So they, they couldn't really figure out what they wanted to do. I can tell you... From spending time in the last week in pro sports locker rooms, 
every team right now is they're having this conversation. What do we do? You've seen a ton of statements come out from owners and organizations. And I think everyone's really not struggling, but like they're putting a lot of thought into what do we want to do to make a statement? Do we kneel? Do we do something else? Here's my thought on this. And I thought LeBron James hit a really good note on this. You know, he basically said at Media Day, this isn't about kneeling. This is about using your platform, which he's done. This is about getting involved in your community. And this is about finding solutions. And to me, that's where, you know, when I have a chance to talk to pro athletes, I say to them, if you want to protest something, know what you are protesting and then put it up on the bulletin board, right? Like we've seen Anquan Bolden and Malcolm Jenkins from the NFL do an amazing job sitting face to face with uh, police and local community organizers, government officials, and they are working hard to not just say this needs to change, but like finding the solution and then working towards that solution. So if you're going to protest something, give me the three to five things that you want done as a result of your protest and then go get involved and do it. One of the biggest complaints I had with Colin Kaepernick and you know, I'm not going to get into do I support him, do I not support him, but the biggest complaint is he didn't vote, okay? If you're going to protest something and then you don't vote, I, I, I lose some respect for you there. I respect him on a number of other levels for what he's done and the movement that he has started and the bravery he's shown to go against the grain on all of this. And the conversations he started, it's been fantastic. But I would have loved to have seen from him in the beginning, and I've said this to pro athletes that I've spoken with in their locker room, give me the very clear goals here. When you're protesting something, what specifically do you want to change? How are you going to be a change agent and make this happen instead of just saying, you know, I want this to change? What are you going to do, whether it's using your platform or rolling up your sleeves to get involved with finding a solution? Once you do that, people will respect you. They will back you. And that's when I think change will start happening. I am a white person. I can't imagine what it's like to be a minority in the world. So, you know, I tell the people I'm speaking with who are mostly minorities, I don't know what it's like to walk in your skin. I don't. So I'm not going to pretend I do. But I can tell you with the temperature of the world being what it is, if you can come up with concrete solutions or work towards those solutions, use your platform and show that you're rolling up your sleeves to find solutions, you're going to get there a lot faster than just kneeling on the sideline, Griggs. Yeah, and we talk about this coming up with Brian about the power of the individual athlete, right? Like you talked about, and uh, and I love, like you said, too, with LeBron, it's that being active, it's going out and actually doing what you're talking about. Kneeling is great to a point, but being active out in the community, especially talking about what you believe and acting on it, and showing people how you can make a change. That's the key, and uh, like LeBron and some of the other ones are doing, and uh, it's it's fascinating. It's a great, it's a it's a very interesting time to be a sports fan in this world because uh, what a week! I mean, what a week in sports. It's all we're talking about now. Well, and the thing that really I think the the switch got flipped this week is for everyone who says you're an athlete, shut up and just play your sport. That game is over, right? Like the athletes have had enough, as they should, in my opinion. And they are now using their platforms, their huge social media platforms, their media platforms to get their messages out and to fight back. And I applaud them for it because, again, as I've said on this show many times, whether it was Michael Jordan or Tiger Woods, there were a lot of athletes and we said, why don't they take a stand on making the world a better place? Why don't they take a stand on an issue? The athletes now, boy, they are taking a stand on issues. They are putting their neck out there. Vaughn Miller lost a local endorsement deal in Denver because he knelt at the Broncos last game. So the local car dealership in Denver said, you know what? We're pulling that endorsement deal. So athletes are risking money and they're risking popularity and they're taking a lot of heat from the 50% who don't agree with them to stick their neck out there. So I applaud them. For doing that, that is a brave thing. It's not an easy thing to do. But they have said enough is enough. And, you know, when Donald Trump sent out his tweets, 
the level of communication that came back from those, whether it was from owners, leagues, or individual athletes, was a tidal wave. And I think that door has now been busted open, and we're not going back at this point. I think the conversation will only grow louder. There will only be more debate. But I think what they've done is said, you know what, we're, we're using our platform, black, white, other athletes, to say this is how I'm speaking out. So, you know, again, it takes bravery, and, and I applaud them for that. Coming up next, Brian Windhorst from ESPN. We're going to dig into the economics of the NBA. We'll cover some other issues as well. Carmelo to Oklahoma City. What is that going to do to Oklahoma City's payroll? What's the future of LeBron James? And as Griggs just said, the power of the athlete has never been more apparent than it's been this last week. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio is sponsored by Boingo Wireless, the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. Today's sports fans expect strong, fast mobile connections at their favorite stadiums. Research shows that fans will leave at halftime if they cannot get connected, which is part of the reason why professional and collegiate sports venues alike work with Boingo to manage their wireless networks. As the world's leading connectivity expert, Boingo knows how to make a venue's vision for the connected fan experience a reality. They are the only company that can provide end-to-end wireless service so teams can focus on the big game, not on their network. Boingo designs, installs, and manages Wi-Fi and cellular networks at university stadiums like K-State and the University of Houston and major league venues like Soldier Field, Phillips Arena, and Vivint Smart Home Arena. We're excited to showcase how technology is changing the business of sports, led by companies like Boingo. Boingo connects you to the people and things you love, like sports. For more information, visit boingo.com or email sports at boingo.com. My guest is Brian Windhorst. He covers the NBA better than anyone for ESPN. You can find him on Twitter at Windhorst ESPN. He co-authored a really insightful piece with Zach Lowe about the economic state of the NBA. Brian, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you? Thanks, Brian, for having me. Yeah, always great to have you on. And we go way back for the listeners out there. Uh, when That's I used true. to be My doing, God. yeah, I mean, I used to do the, the Nike basketball stuff, uh, high school basketball. And I mean, you were covering LeBron and, and I'm just so happy. I was saying this off air a minute ago. I'm so happy for your rise because you are one of the smartest people out there. And, you know, I, I was actually talking to, uh, Rick Buecher the other day about you just saying one of the things I really like about your reporting is, when you don't know the answer to something, if someone asks you to project something, if you don't know the answer to it, you don't try and speculate just to speculate. You'll say, you know what? I don't know the answer to that. So uh, good job on that. In the day and age when a lot of people just throw something out there, you're a very responsible reporter. Yeah, it's hard because, you know, so often, not only just, you know, sometimes it's a pressure the moment you're on live television, you're asked a question, and they want an answer, right? Um, you know, sometimes it's hard. Uh, also, I think we're also in the era where um, sometimes a lot of people forget when people are wrong. I think it's easy to sort of say wild stuff at times. And then if you're right, you can pat yourself on the back. And if you're wrong, because there's such a flow of information and content that it's easy to forget. I mean, maybe I'm wrong in the way I'm doing this. Maybe it hurts me in a way, but I just would prefer to 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 look back at something that I wrote or that I said a year or five years earlier and, and feel pretty good about it. That's not, it's never going to be a hundred percent, right? Because you're always going to have stuff that you believe in or you make an assessment on that ends up being incorrect. It's, it's part of life, but I try to limit that as much as possible. I don't know how much currency it gets because I think some people are rewarded for, for not doing it that way, but it's just what I believe in. So I tried to always do that. Well, keep it up. Uh, the story you wrote on the gap between the league's most profitable teams and the weaker siblings, as you call it in the story, was really insightful. God, you had some amazing information in there that you had access to. I know the Board of Governors are meeting this week in New York. And, you know, the headline of the story, Brian, was that 14 of the 30 NBA teams lost money last season. And you see that these teams are bringing in $2.7 billion per year from the TV deals. And you go, wait a minute, how is it possible that 14 of the 30 teams are losing money? Right. So, like, 
basically the genesis of this is after the summer uh, Board of Governors meetings, um, there were at least a few teams, teams that, that, you know, that I talked to that were surprised that the finances of the league hadn't, um, you know, hadn't been dramatically turned around by the TV revenue. Um, and, you know, people were describing these numbers to me. And, and so basically, Zach Lowe and I spent some time and we were able to uh, get our hands on the league's financial documents, which the league was not happy about. I've, I've heard some people indicate that they thought that the league wanted people to know they were losing money and even indicated to me that um, the league was somehow in, in cooperation with me with this. No, I mean, I mean, I'm, I don't know if they would want me to say this, but I mean, I talked to the league. Zach and I talked to the league when we got the documents. They knew for well over a month that we had them, and we worked with them as they helped try to make us understand things, but they were not happy that we had them. And, um, you know, I could have WikiLeaked it, Brian. I could have just literally put every team's business out there. Right. Um, but I, I didn't want to do that because, number one, I didn't want to, you know, harm certain relationships. And I also felt like it was a responsibility that I was, that I was <laughs> able to get these documents to try to do some reporting to give them context. And, yes, we did put quite a few figures in there but you know uh, you know at least at this moment i've seen every team's books from last year and i know how every team is performing but every single team is a different story um and we could probably have done 30 stories um talking about each team's individual financial situation and so i wanted to be as fair and as balanced as i possibly could in this whether or not zach and i achieved that is for other people to decide. But I really didn't think it would benefit even the reader if I dumped all the documents out there because um, uh, I would be overwhelming and, and things like that. So we really tried to, I mean, I scoured the documents for weeks. I showed them to some accountants who um, specialize in sports, uh, not NBA, uh, other professional sports. I I talked to the CFO of another professional sports team to try to help me understand them, for example. And I spent a lot of time with them. And so um, we tried to present a story that was interesting. Whether or not a lot of people liked it or or understood it or whatever, I I can't say. But um, it was was a summer-long project for Zach and I. So for people listening to this show who don't know, I used to work for the Portland Trailblazers, so I have a, a keen insight to the business of the NBA in particular. One of the things that stood out about your story was the local media revenue, right? I'm in Portland. That's been a struggle for the Blazers. But, you know, the numbers you throw out in the story. So the Lakers bring in $148 million annually from their deal with Time Warner Cable. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got the Memphis Grizzlies who are bringing in $9.4 million. So you can see a clear delineation between the haves and the have-nots when it comes to local media revenue. Doesn't that play, excuse me, a big part of this? Yeah. So, like, the difference between the NFL and the NBA, obviously, is that in the NFL, all television revenue is pooled. Right, because all of the games are on are on some sort of national television, even if they're only shown regionally, they're all coming from the same uh, product, and the national television or, or or that revenue helps set the salary cap. In the case of the of the NBA, um, that's you know local revenue is different in every market. So last season, roughly the Lakers made more per week from local media than the Lakers than the Grizzlies made in the entire season. And there's a and Brian, there is a wide you know the local media deals are incredible. For example, the Atlanta Hawks make more from their local TV deal than the Golden State Warriors do. Um, now, every every story is different. The Warriors, when they got this TV deal, it was the same year that their owners bought the team back in 2010, and they got a 50 million dollar upfront payment that helped them finance the the team. So their their annual price. Is less so. Every, again, every deal is different. That's why you can't just docu dump it and say here it all is. But that just illustrates that a lot of it isn't just when you. Um, it isn't just about you know the actual money. There's circumstances. Everything. One of the reasons why the Grizzlies only made nine million dollars in local media revenue last year is because they were at the end of an old deal with Fox Sports South. They have a new deal this year. 
um, that will boost them up. And I actually believe that the Charlotte Hornets a year, you know, if we had these documents in a year, you'll see the Charlotte Hornets in last place. Um, so some of it is cyclical. Um, but in case of, in the case of Portland, for example, the Blazers just got a new local TV deal with uh, Comcast, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and, I, you know, I'm sure there was multiple bids for it, and I know that it was, it, it was negotiated out over a year. And I'm sure it's a, it, was an, it was an improvement on their previous deal, but the Blazers are still in the bottom half of the league. In, uh, in local media revenue because their market size. I mean, that's not going to surprise anybody. But the reality is, is that, um, and, and we had an owner tell us this, he was quoted in the story, the national revenues drive the salary cap. So as the, the local, um, as the, um, you know, the, uh, the national television revenue comes in, the, the salary cap goes up. In fact, it went up uh, almost $30 million over a three-year span. But the local revenue, local ticket sales, local sponsorship, local media determines whether or not your team's going to make money. Because ultimately, as the, the national money comes in, the salary cap goes with it, and you have to spend the money. So really what you get into when you look at these teams' playoff revenue, when you look at these teams' arena revenue, what they're making um, you know, in their arena. When you look at this team's, um, you know, sponsorship revenue, what they make in sponsorship. You know, for example, um, the the Oklahoma City Thunder make a tremendous amount of money in local sponsorship, um, more than so many of their of their um, competitors. Because when the team got there, the local sponsors really wanted to keep it healthy, and it became a culture there to locally sponsor it. The Utah Jazz do very very poorly at least according to these documents and local sponsorship. But the Jazz, you know, have a better local TV deal than the, than the Washington Wizards, for example. So every team story is different. Um, and, um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, um, you still have a widespread of have and have-nots. And, you know, last year, $200 million was shared between the rich teams and the poor teams, and most of it was coming from those top three or four teams, the the Knicks, the Lakers, the Warriors, and the Bulls. Yeah, so in your story, four teams, the Warriors, Knicks, Lakers, and Bulls accounted for $144 million of the revenue-sharing transfers. Five teams, Memphis, Charlotte, Indiana, Milwaukee, and Utah, have received at least $15 million in each of the past four seasons. So here's the question. Can't some owners buy in take their revenue-sharing transfers, and then sit on the value of their franchise increasing? We just saw the Rockets go for $2.2 billion. What's the incentive, other than, I guess, pride, to want to be competitive and not just sit there with the catchers? I mean, in baseball, we've talked about this with the Florida Marlins, for the Miami Marlins, for years now, that you know yeah. they don't spend... And they take a big chunk of the revenue share, and then every once in a while, they'll they'll field a competitive team. That's what I think. The, it was so fascinating about the Grizzlies. The Grizzlies do spend. Um, the Grizzlies, um, um, you know, they're a class organization. Uh, right. You know, they've they've ranked very highly. I, I know there may be other ratings that I, that are, you know, you would be able to point me to. It's more your field than mine that evaluates, um, all of the, all of the, um, performance across everything. Uh, the 122 professional teams, they've ranked very highly in the ESPN rankings. One year they were named the best organization in all sports by ESPN, the mag. Um, they've made the playoffs seven years in a row. And it's incredible. Um, and yet, um, they financially are heavily dependent on their partners. If they didn't have revenue sharing, they would go out of business. Um, and so, um, you know, yes, in some situations it's about do you run your team well? Um, and some situations it's about is this just, are you just happy floating? Um, there's one team, and I don't want to call them out because I don't know all others, but there's one team to me that looks like it. <laughs> You know, it doesn't spend much money on anything. It hasn't been – it's had moments of success over the last 20 years, but not really. And they basically break even, and they collect an enormous revenue-sharing check. And they're owned by one of the richest men in the, um, in, the, in the country. And this guy obviously is a good businessman because he's operating that team like a business, and it's finishing in the black because of revenue-sharing. At least it did last year looking at the books. So um, I think, again, there's 30 different stories. 
Um, you know, the, the, the San Antonio Spurs are a fascinating uh, situation. They play in one of the smaller markets in the league. I think like the 21st or 22nd media market, maybe 23rd. Um, last year, they made money on the whole. But because they overachieved in their market, they had to pay into revenue sharing. And they actually went from a profitable team to a team in the red um, because they had to, um, to to pay their partners in revenue sharing. Now, somebody could come back and say, well, they weren't actually in the red, Brian, because their franchise gained value in that year. And ultimately, you know, whenever they sell, they'll make a huge profit. That is true. Of course, that's true. That, that, that there, there is equity um, increases. But equity increases don't help you pay your bills year to year. And so, you know, I'm looking at some of these teams that are losing, you know, the Detroit Pistons, for example, they lost $60 million last year, um, 40 million, more than 40 million after revenue sharing. Um, that is not a sustain. I don't care. They are not gaining in, in value 40 million a year. And that 40 million that they're gaining in value, they don't get in liquidity every year. Uh, Tom Gores and his partners had to absorb a massive loss to operate that team. And that's one of the reasons why they are moving from the Palace of Auburn Hills, a building that they own rent-free, um, or at least their parent company owns, however they, they you know, devise the, the, uh, the business. Um, and they are moving to a building where they, they sh- that they'll have to pay rent in in downtown Detroit because financially they're struggling so much. So, um, yes, ultimately these teams are advancing. And if Robert Parra uh, sells, uh, his share in the Grizzlies, which is possible in the next month, he will make a, probably a very big profit because he bought the team at a $370 million valuation, and they're probably worth 800 to a billion now. And Robert Pear would walk away with a huge profit, even though he's lost money probably most of these years. But that doesn't mean that I would call all of these organizations healthy organizations that everybody's getting you know further rich on. So here's the dirty little secret, and, and I'll give you an example, and you know this. But when you own a pro sports team, whether it's NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, whatever, it gets you into a club. And when you're into that club, it opens up doors for your other businesses. And you and I are both very well familiar with Dan Gilbert in Cleveland. And when Dan Gilbert buys the Cavs, he also wanted to do some development in downtown Cleveland, casinos, things like that. He has other businesses. Most of these owners are multi-billionaires. So... A, if they take a loss on their pro sports franchise, sometimes it's a write-off. But B, it helps their other businesses. Like, you can't tell me if Dan Gilbert was just a business person trying to get what he wanted done in downtown Cleveland without being the owner of the Cavs, without LeBron James coming back, he probably doesn't get that stuff done. Now, that's not stuff you can measure on the accounting ledger on a spreadsheet for how your NBA team did, but it has value beyond that ledger. Is that correct? For sure. I mean, in the the case of Dan Gilbert, um, he was able to pass a ballot measure in Ohio in 2009 to build casinos in the state of Ohio. And that measure had failed, I believe, four other times over the previous 20 years. And had he not been Dan Gilbert, owner of the Cavs, um, who had very successful with a very positive reputation, and he had been just some faceless, uh, out-of-state businessman, no, he does not get that passed. And, and whatever he makes off the casino versus whatever losses he has with the Cavs, is it a worthwhile investment? Most likely, yes. You're absolutely correct. I'm not going to sit here and argue that um, these owners aren't all benefiting from one way or another in association. Like I said, there's 30 different stories. Every team and every situation has a different story. But I think the, the reason we were driven to do this particular story was because the, the, the last year was the first year of the new TV deal. And I will tell you that every team, Brian, received $84 million in collective revenue. Now, that wasn't all from TV. There's other media rights that are in there. You know, they sell overseas rights and some other stuff. But every team, um, with the exception of four, uh, every team received $84 million. Um, the four were the San Antonio Spurs, Indiana Pacers, um, New uh, Brooklyn uh, Nets, and uh, Denver Nuggets because of the old deal with the uh, ABA Spirits of St. Louis. Um, they had to uh, they each had to pay they each received eight million dollars less to settle that old claim. Um, but other than that, each team received eighty four million dollars um, as part of those national media contracts. 
Um, and so we're thinking that, um, uh, you know, that this is something that is going to result in incredible amounts of, of profit, um, incredible amounts of new money. Um, but instead, we still see that half the league, uh, at least from a net income standpoint, um, was, was below the line. And that's because, yeah, they received $84 million, but um, the salary cap was $94 million, and almost every team exceeded the salary cap and was somewhere between the salary cap and the, um, and the, and the luxury tax line of about 110 And so even with that huge, local, that huge national payment of $84 million, if you had a $110 million payroll and you only made $15 million on your local TV deal, you still needed to generate a hell of a lot of money uh, you know, that's before you pay your coaches. That's before you pay your insurance. That's before you pay your sales staff. That's before you pay your your uh, mortgage on your arena. You know all these things. You know, considering the expense loads of these teams, if you didn't do really well locally, if you didn't earn, you know, forty or fifty million dollars in your in your ticket sales and everything like that, which some teams frankly didn't, um, you lost money. And so I think that was the point of this story was that um, that, that the new TV money was not a panacea. It certainly was a driver in incredibly new rich salaries for um, for NBA players and for a handful of teams. They have never made more money. I mean, the Los Angeles Lakers, Brian, um, made over $160 million in profit last year, even after they, they, they spent $50 million to share to to, to 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 give revenue sharing to their partners, they still ended up holding 115 million dollars in net um, in net profit off a season which they had no star player for the first time in 20 years, and they didn't make the playoffs and had a terrible season. Imagine what would happen if they're able to land some some stars in free agency, or if Lonzo Ball turns into an all star and they make a, a two round playoff run. Um, and you know, the, you know, the irony again. You say, well, the Lakers must be a terribly rich franchise. Lakers are owned by the Bus family. I think they own 66 or 68 percent. There's six of them. They share the profits, and some some of it goes into the family trust. And so, um, when the Lakers sit at the table with Paul Allen and Dan Gilbert and, and uh, Stan Kroenke and Mickey Arison, the Jeannie Buss is one of the poorest people at the table. She's got the the, the healthiest, uh, most profit uh, uh, churning franchise, and yes, she may be worth a few billion dollars. Because if you oversold the Lakers, you you know I wouldn't let the Lakers go for more than for less than four billion. Looking at these numbers, but she's she's the she's the pauper at the table. You know she can't she can't come anywhere near <laughs> to Steve Ballmer, who shares the arena with her. And frankly, again, you look at these numbers. Um, the 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 Clippers made over twenty million dollars less. In arena revenue in the state in the Staples Center last year than the Lakers did, even though they both played the same number of games there. The Clippers played more games there because they had playoff games. Um, it's, now you know why Steve Bummer wants his own arena. But that's just that's what's so fantastic. That's why I say it's thirty different stories um, because the Lakers are different. I know I'm getting off on on rants. I'm sorry, but like and, and but I mean that's what's you know so remarkable is that um, you know here are the Lakers who do so incredibly well. Um, even in a bad year, and you have the Grizzlies who had a really good year and lost forty million dollars uh, in revenue at least before they got thirty-two million from their partners. Otherwise, it would have been a terrible year, and and that's never going to get solved. Even if the if the if the Grizzlies are the greatest, um, most well-run team in all professional sports, and the Lakers are the worst-run team, which they're not, um, you're going to have this disparity, and that's just the truth. That's the point we wanted to point out. Nobody's arguing that anybody needs to cry tears for any of the rich men who own these teams. But uh, it, just, uh, it just points out that, boy, why did the Detroit Pistons let Cantavius Caldwell-Pope walk away? Maybe it's because they lost $60 million last year. That's one of the things to point out. We'll return to our conversation after a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sports Business Radio is brought to you by Ergon Office, who manufacture beautiful, high-quality electronic standing desks. Co-founded by former hockey player Sam Finn, Ergon Office is on a mission to inspire people to live a more active lifestyle because the human body just wasn't meant to be sitting 13 hours a day. When I'm not in the recording studio, I have a home office and I like to alternate standing and sitting throughout the course of the day. If I don't, my back gets sore or it'll lock up. 
I also get an energy boost every time I stand and work or talk on the phone. Studies have proven alternating between sitting and standing leads to increased productivity and a reduction in muscle disorders like back pain or carpal tunnel, which cost society close to $50 billion annually in lost productivity and medical bills. What I love the most about Ergon Office is that the desks adjust using an embedded touchscreen, allowing you to switch seamlessly between a sitting and standing position in seconds. You can even save your preferred heights for more convenience. Ergon Office's height adjustable desks are available in Canada and the United States. Change how you work and be healthier in the process. Ergon Office has beautiful, high-quality desks with a unique design, and they couldn't be easier to adjust. Their customer service is great, too, so they'll help you find the best desks that work for your needs. I'm a really big fan of this company. Check them out at ergonoffice.com backslash SBR and use the promo code SBR10 to get 10% off any standing desk. That's ergonoffice, E-R-G-O-N-O-F-I-S dot com backslash SBR, promo code SBR10. Follow them on Twitter and Instagram at ergonoffice. Now back to our conversation. Yeah, it's interesting. As a side note, you bring up, you know, the Clippers and needing their own venue. When you look at the Clippers or you look at the LA Chargers now in the NFL, if you don't own your own arena or stadium and get the revenues that come with that and you're just renting, boy, it is really hard to make money. Um, another thing that's new this year, Brian, that I want to touch on really quickly that you touched on in your article that I thought was fascinating is the patch money, right? So, you know, the big headline has been Golden State got $20 million per year that you guys reported to wear jersey patches. And the split of the money is interesting. The Warriors keep only 25%. Half goes to the players. 25% is shared with the other teams. Until I read your story, I didn't really know what that breakdown was of how that was divided. Right. So the the general uh, estimation was that the Jersey Pat sponsorship was going to add roughly $100 million in revenue um, to the league. Um, but when you add $100 million, um, only, you know, the, the league and, and players split it 50 50. Um, and that's what that's important to, to recognize. And by the way, the players get their split um, off the top. And that's and the re- and that sounds simple, but there, but there's a reason that that I, I want to point that out because when this story came out, um, uh, then we said, well, half the teams in the league are losing money, even though that in, in net, you know, what 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 they would call net net, the league made five hundred and thirty three million. It was I don't I, I wish I had the books, Brian, from every year of NBA history. I only have this last year's books. Um, but my guess is that was the largest total in the history of the league. Um, so the league is still healthy. Um, but the players get half of the revenue right off the top. And so what the, what the NBA teams do with the other 50%, whether they uh, do some things and, and earn enough money to be profitable or not, frankly, the players don't care. Ultimately, the players want the, the overall pie to grow and the teams to be successful so that they continue to have a league. But the, the team's losing money, it, it's, a, it's a negotiating point that may happen um, when they go to the bargaining table. But the, frankly, as long as the players, it's actually 51%, as long as the players get their 51%, they don't care what the owners do with the other 49. And last year, I think the revenue was about a seven point something billion or a little under $8 billion. As long as the players got their $4 billion to disperse amongst themselves, they don't really care. And that's what happens with this jersey patch. Um, you know, uh, so it's, a, it's about $100 million they're projecting. Uh, it may be coming in a little higher than that once all 30 teams uh, sell. Um, but by the way, this is another example of market inequality. So, the, so the, you know, the, I think the Lakers, I think, was reported at 10 or $15 million a year. Um, the Warriors was reported at uh, twenty. I think the Cavs got uh, ten uh, for for their jersey patch. The the Utah Jazz um, had their patch. Uh, they they've made it a charity patch, and that's a, an, an honorable thing to do. But one of the reasons why they did that probably is because they weren't going to be able locally to get ten million dollars a year. So instead, they turned it into a. Uh, opportunity to um, do charity. Uh, if I, I highly doubt they would have turned down ten million dollars a year if they if they had that locally. And I I already told you earlier that the Jazz 
based on the numbers that I have, show some of the weakest local sponsorship. They have tremendous arena revenue. They have a real solid TV deal for their market size, um, but they just don't have local sponsorship revenue comparisonly, and so they don't have it. So, um, you know, even market to market. But the one positive for the Jazz is they get to share from the Warriors. They're going to get some of that money from the Warriors. Uh, for that jersey patch. And so, um, yeah, so, you know, even as, as great as that is for Golden State, boy, $20 million a year, you think that's great. You know, um, they're going to get to, you know, only get so certain so much of it because they have to share it with not only the players but their own partners. Just a few more questions for you. So Carmelo Anthony traded to Oklahoma City. He's got two years left on his deal. Paul George, Russell Westbrook, as of this moment, are free agents at the end of next year. Here's the thing I'm looking at is you've got luxury tax and the Thunder are going to be paying luxury tax. Then you've got the repeat tax for teams that are paying luxury tax more than one year in a row. Could we see the Thunder with a $300 million payroll if they want to keep those three guys? Well, it's a repeater tax if you pay four out of any five years. Okay. Um, But it's a rolling number, so you can't just sit out a year. You know, it's four out of any five, not just four out of the last five, you know. Um, so, yeah, the Thunder are, you know, dedicated, you know, the Thunder, despite being in a small market, um, do do well. They, they're profitable. Now, my guess is with their payroll this year, they're headed for the red. Um, here's what the Thunder would tell you. And I'm not making this up. I, I Let's just say that I, I know what the Thunder would, uh, how they're looking at it. Um, if they're able to retain a couple of these players, even if they don't retain all three, um, then the spending will have been worth it. If they're able to retain Paul George because they traded for Carmelo Anthony, um, then it'll have been worth it. If they're able to retain Russell Westbrook because of the Paul George and Melo Anthony trades, it'll be worth it. And if they're able to retain all three, and they're looking at a, a, a payroll that exceeds $200 million, um, you know, maybe even approaches three hundred million, as you said, Brian, um, because they are they have been in the tax, uh, you know, recently. Um, then you know it will have meant that all three of them would have stayed, and it would have been an incredible, um, you know, vote of confidence in, in basketball in Oklahoma City. But yes, I, I don't think any NBA team can survive um, right now paying three hundred million dollars. In, in salary and tax. I think that will be pretty hard uh, realistically to happen. But, um, uh, you know, the Thunder are a team that have been able to bank a lot of profits over the last 10 years. They have been a team that have generally been profitable since day one. They've been very fortunate. They've had great players. And they've had excellent management. And they've been a, a contender literally every year they've been in Oklahoma City. Um, maybe not the first year, but certainly the second year onward. They've been a playoff team every year, and um, essentially, I think maybe they missed once. And um, and they've been you know deep in the playoffs, and they've been very relevant. And they've done great local sponsorship wise. They have a a decent local TV deal, so they are a business success story. And if they have to absorb you know a, a year or two of losses to to try to continue that success out longer, they can withstand it. Um, but again, they are the classic example. They are their own story. You go look at the Memphis Grizzlies. You go look at um, you know the Charlotte Hornets. Um, they have different situations uh, and different local local uh, finance structures. Biggest star in the NBA is the guy you've been following since eighth grade, LeBron James. Most people know that he's a free agent at the end of this season. He was non-committal at media day this week with the Cavaliers. Give me your thoughts. I know you've been asked about this a lot. I, you know, my personal opinion and from everyone I've spoken to for a number of reasons, I have a hard time seeing him going back to Cleveland uh, after this season. But what are your thoughts? Well, I think he's um, he, he's doing it with a smile and his in his uh, and, a, and a big heart. But he's he's constructed a beautiful hedge for himself. Um, he says, I love Cleveland. I still plan to finish my career here, but I'll evaluate my, my, um, my, off, my future in the, in the summer. And the Cavs, having been burned before, um, have constructed a hedge of their own. In the Kyrie Irving trade, they got the rights to the Brooklyn Nets pick next year, which, you know, could be a top three pick or, you know, could be a top eight pick. I don't know. Um, but they're not going to trade that pick 
for a player until they know LeBron is going to be there. Now, um, there are some people who would say to you, Brian, uh, LeBron James is a unreplenishable resource. You know, Kyrie Irving, as good of a player as he is, he's an all-star guard. And if you draft high in the draft over the course of three or four years and you handle your business right, you can replace Kyrie Irving. You know, and I, I generally believe that. Um, you cannot replace LeBron James. When LeBron leaves Cleveland, um, very likely there will not be a player of his ability uh, and import maybe in 50 years in Cleveland, <laughs> maybe in 100 years. Um, he is he's an unreplenishable resource. So um, he has the ability to, to hedge without um, the organization turning their back on him. And he intends to use that leverage, and I think um, I think he will. Um, one of the things that I've learned in the 15 years I've covered the NBA is that just when you think you're safe to make a prediction, the league ends up making you look foolish. Um, if one week ago uh, I had told you that Carmelo Anthony was going to be on the Thunder, I could have gotten pretty good odds from you. And so the league is literally changing every day. So while I can see the landscape like everybody else, and I can see various reasons why um, LeBron would maybe want to leave Cleveland, and I could build a strong, I could write a thesis paper and make a strong, you know, a sell, uh, you know, like on a stock and say, no, no, sell the Cavs because he's going to be leaving. Everything I could say would make total sense, like, and, 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 it, and it would be uh, reasonable and rational and everything like that. Because of the unpredictability of the league, especially in this era, um, there's just no way to know. And it's not what fans want to hear. Fans want to hear black and white answers. Yes, no. LeBron is going to the Lakers. LeBron is not going to the Lakers. And, and some people have even uh, come out there and put their name on a report and said this is going to happen. And, um, you know, they may end up being right. Um, but right now I would say that anybody – who, who thinks that they know what's going to happen with LeBron is just guessing. Maybe there more people, some people are confident more in their, in their, in their confidence than others. And maybe they'll end up guessing correctly. Um, but the league is just too volatile right now. The situation is too volatile. So, um, you know, be, and LeBron knows that, which is one of the reasons why he's leaving his options open. And one of the reasons why the Cavs are leaving their options open. Last question. We could probably do an hour on this just alone. Because of what I do outside this show, I sit in a number of pro sports locker rooms. And it's no secret what's happened this week with the anthem and the kneeling and the tweets from Donald Trump. And here's my question to you. One of the things that I'm seeing, and I've tweeted this out a few times, is I think that players who are free agents or who can dictate their own fate for who they played for – they're going to look at the political uh, thoughts and beliefs of their ownership going forward. That's an important element to them. Do you see that from where you sit? Because, you know, if you have owners who are supportive of your thoughts and beliefs, you got players who are who are willing to play for you. If you don't, it definitely creates this friction. I think in some cases, um, at the end of the day, most free agents sign where the highest offer is. Um, but if you are a high enough quality player where the offers are high everywhere and you go to secondary and tertiary reasons for wanting to be with the team, um, yes, it could come into play. And if it's a big enough name and, a, and an important enough um, uh, you know, type of player, then it could potentially be franchise-altering, uh, depending on where you are. Um, what I would say is, is this. Um, most billionaires who are owners of um, major conglomerations or own numerous, or, you know, numerous things, they end up politically supporting candidates from both sides. I think, and I have, if you go look at donations, certainly they may lean more one direction than the other. But a lot of them, you know, are polygamous when it comes to uh, who they support uh, because they have to, because they, you know, they need access to the, to the politicians no matter who wins. But what I think is interesting about this, Brian, is that <clears throat> as much as NBA or NFL owners need um, tax breaks 
or need certain advantages to their uh, businesses, they need the players more. And so I, I think one of the amazing things of this week, despite what the president has said and from a non-political standpoint, um, look at how all the owners in various ways have, had, have either issued statements supporting their players or come out and been visibly supporting their players. Um, that is an indication that no matter what an owner's beliefs are, that the players still have the power. The, the owners need the players um, more than they need certain political uh, influence. And I think while we're all, while everybody is focused on the actual, you know, moments of protest and um, what individual teams are doing in individual moments, if you take a step back and look at the broad thing, uh, I think it's been an incredible week for professional athletes um, because their power um, you know, typically you think that the that the ownership has all the power. We've seen the players um, uh, have a better idea of where their power is. Brian Windhorst, he covers the NBA better than anyone for ESPN. You can find him on Twitter at Windhorst ESPN. I would pay specific attention to the article that we discussed on today's show that he co-authored with Zach Lowe. You can find that at ESPN. Dot com. Brian, always appreciate your time. Continued success to you, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. Thanks to our friends at Boingo Wireless for powering our Sports Business Radio Roadshow. Follow them online at boingo.com or on Twitter at boingo. A podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast. Go to iTunes, type in Sports Business Radio rated in the top 50 business news podcasts. You can also find our show on Audio Boom via the TuneIn Radio and Stitcher apps and, of course, at sportsbusinessradio.com. Follow me on Twitter in between shows at SB Radio. Follow us on Instagram at Sports Business Radio. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is David Stern. He's the commissioner of the NBA. It is always a pleasure, Brian. Bill Hancock, he's the executive director of the Bull Championship Series. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Mark, thanks for joining me. My pleasure. My guest is Mickey Loomis. He's the executive vice president and general manager of the world champion New Orleans Saints. Pleasure to be with you guys. Mr. Allen, thank Thanks for joining me. Thank you. My guest is Mark Emmert. He's the president of the NCAA. Oh, happy to join you. My pleasure. My guest is Eric Spolstra. He's the head coach of the Miami Heat. Brian, appreciate it. Glad to, glad to be on the show. Mr. Nicholas, it's an honor to have you on Sports Business Radio. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Brian. Visit sportsbusinessradio.com and subscribe to our free iTunes podcast. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and stay connected to the business side of sports only with Sports Business Radio.